fun time up with uh, the transformation ministry today in the 9.30 hour over in the other building. And we just had a great time together and joined being with uh, these younger generations. And it made me feel really young. Tell you what, I, I really liked it. Yeah, made me feel really young. But good to see everybody here today. And I hope you will take advantage of our 201 class. Uh, Pastor Cole said it's a couple weeks out. It's next Sunday. Okay, next Sunday. And uh, you do need to sign up so we know how much food to offer. We do a meal halfway through. And so please, he's going to be in the lobby today. Ask questions. Uh, 201 is how you learn how to grow in the Christian life. And anybody can take the class. If you've taken part of it before, or even if you've taken the whole thing and you want to refresh your course to get your devotional life back on track, we really want you to come. We need about eight to ten people to be able to offer the class, and so make sure you sign up today. I was uh, blessed to recall earlier this morning, uh, September 9th is the 11th anniversary for me as senior pastor here at Centennial, and so that's kind of a neat thing. Uh, God has certainly been merciful to me and good to our family through this body of believers. And I want everybody to know how thankful that we are to have you folks in our lives. Uh, we would be just fine with God giving us decades more to come in this place. And I promise you that every pastor uh, cannot honestly say that on a Sunday service, okay? There are some pastors who are trying to leave the next day. Uh, and I, I really like it here. And if you'll keep me, I'll stay. So, uh, it's it's blessing to be able to say that. But last week we started into a series called Modern Church. And we covered a lot of territory at our first session. Uh, we discovered that modern issues all stem from ancient issues. And all issues come from the heart. Today uh, we're going to look at modern truths. And some of you astute scholars have already guessed up front that modern truths also happen to be grounded in ancient truths. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And so I hate to disappoint you, but this message does not have any new truth today. Uh, but we do need to talk about our approach to truth. Because it doesn't matter how brilliant we are or how masterfully we speak, if the people we're talking to don't understand what we're saying... Uh, we're going to use two biblical case studies today to present the message. One from an event in Peter's life. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, another in the event of Paul, who was another New Testament figure, uh, an event in his life. And what we're going to find is that Peter and Paul both preached the pure gospel of Jesus, but they did it to different crowds in different ways. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. And I hope you'll get there either on your device or if you have uh, your printed Bible with you. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going. Peter spoke to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so we're in Acts 2. The notes are inside your bulletin, by the way, if you'd like to follow along with the message. And I'll start the reading here this morning in Acts 2 and verse 29, where Peter said, Men and brethren... Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher, his gravestone, is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ or Messiah to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? But Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. Let's talk first about the Acts 2 mindset. And it's good that we open with this passage in many ways because we're talking about modern church and how we relate to Scripture. And I guarantee you there are a good portion of people out there today who, as we just read that, you're pretty much going, I don't know what we're reading. I don't really understand what we're talking about. And so let's start with this Acts 2 mindset. On this miraculous day in history... When 3,000 souls were saved and baptized and added to the Jerusalem church, Peter was talking to devout Jews, many of whom had been displaced by Roman oppression, many of whom had grown up in other Middle Eastern countries. They spoke different languages. They had different customs. But they all had something in common. They were all aware of Jewish history and tradition. Peter was speaking to people who already believed in one God, the creator of mankind. They already knew about Abraham being the father of faith and and Moses giving the law. They had already bought into the Old Testament. They already knew about the Messiah. Though many of them didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised. So Peter had a common starting point to begin talking to them. And the message he preached, the Holy Spirit's power, brought them to a decision point. Either accept the risen Messiah or continue to reject the Messiah. Now, it's pretty miraculous. 3,000 of them chose to become Jesus followers in one day. That's a miracle. As I was thinking about this passage, I recall that there was a time in this country... When most people had a good opinion about Christianity. Even if they hadn't yielded their lives to Christ. And many people were openly religious. Uh, I love the joke that Emo Phillips tells of walking across a bridge and, and seeing a man standing on the edge ready to jump off. And so he ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, the man said. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? 
well, are you religious? And the man said, yes. And I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? I'm Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of our Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or Reformed Baptist Church of God? Uh, Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Well, are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or Reformation of 1915? His new friend replied, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. To which uh, Phillips replied, die, heretic, and pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) We get uh, pretty intense with our religious labels, don't we? Right? It's a big deal, these religious labels that we carry around. And in the 1960s and 70s, uh, people were likely involved in some type of faith, and it had some value in their lives. Uh, let's take an average American adult from the 1960s, and how many of you would be willing to say, I was at least 18 year old, years old sometime during the 1960s? Okay, so look around, everybody, right there. These people were already adults in the 60s, so they can corroborate what I'm about to say, if they remember that far back. (laughs) The average adult in the 1960s, uh, his or her spiritual resume probably included the following. Uh, There was already an acceptance of the deity of Christ. Okay, they already thought, you know what, Jesus is God. Uh, The truth already existed in their mind, the Bible was already trustworthy. Church experience was relatively healthy. There was a foundational knowledge of essential truths. There was a built-in sense of morality based upon the Judeo-Christian ethic. And on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being absolutely no knowledge or interest in Christ, to 10 being saving faith in Christ, The average person in 1960 was maybe at a 7 or 8. And it would take a spirit-led bump to get the person's knowledge up to where it needed to be for a salvation decision. Now let me give you a disclaimer alert, okay, right in the middle of the message. Uh, Knowledge itself cannot save anyone. The Holy Spirit has to convict you that you need Jesus and draw you to his cross. No matter your level of knowledge. And uh, that's not the message today. I just don't want you to leave confused. So we have this 1960s individual. Starting place of seven or eight. uh, Still lost. Still headed for eternal death. But with the foundation of truth already present in his or her mind. Now when you link that to some of the top evangelism strategies. Of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, There were Bible conferences and revival meetings. And there was a cultural pressure to attend from friends. Uh, By the way, there's no problem with good peer pressure, right? Get people to come to God. By the way, let me give some peer pressure to you. We have a Bible conference coming up, isn't that crazy, Uh, three weeks from today. And it's a one-day conference, 9.30, Be at all three services. Uh, Evangelist Summerdorf does a great job. But there were these conferences and positive peer pressure. There was a a lot of door-to-door visitation was a big thing. 
people weren't hesitant to talk to strangers on their front porches. And church people had a good reputation in the community. Back then, it was rude not to talk to people who knocked on your door. Now, door-to-door calls can still be a spirit-filled work. uh, But the initial reaction to somebody at the door may be very different than it was uh, 50 years ago in most communities. And you might have to have eight or nine interactions with a person now before he comes to Christ instead of one or two. Sunday school was another big thing. And, and there were bus ministries. That's what they were called in just about every, every gospel preaching church. And buses would go out and pick up uh, boys and girls from the neighborhoods near and far to bring them to Sunday school. Now think about this. This is 1960. Bus ministries were supported by parents who willingly allowed their children to board a bus driven by a stranger, to be taken away to a building where they'd never been, to spend time with more strangers, and then with the promise that they would be brought back home later that day. Now, does that sound maybe a hair far-fetched in 2018? It's a little more far-fetched than it used to be, but praise God, there's still successful bus ministries all over the nation. That's a great thing. But during this era, in the 60s and 70s, a one-time cold call presentation of the gospel was very effective because people only needed to be spiritually led from an 8 to a 10 to come to Christ. I remember going out on visitation in the mid-1980s when I was in high school. Uh, On Thursday nights, every week, we'd go out. And almost every week, we would have at least one or two people pray to accept salvation at their front door the very first time we met them. And looking back on that, I would say, what a miracle. Some of them truly were saved. Others were probably just trying to get us off their front porch, right? Uh, Could be both ways. But the question is, does a first-time meeting still lead to that result? And here's the answer. It certainly can if the Holy Spirit has prepared the way. And we should regularly pray for a harvest of souls. Uh, But it's clear that we don't have as many people starting with a Jesus knowledge of seven or eight as we used to have. See, Acts 2, what we just read, think about this. It happened about 50 days after the resurrection. Okay, all the newspapers were still talking about it. It happened in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was crucified and rose from the tomb. There was a heightened knowledge of Jesus. Now we're going to go to Acts 17. And Acts 17 happened 20 years after the resurrection. Acts 17 didn't happen in Jerusalem. It happened in Athens, Greece. Smack dab in the middle of a pagan metropolis. Let's talk about the Acts 17 mindset and fast forward to Acts 17. I'll give you a little lead into this. Uh, anybody ever been to Athens? Okay, this guy back here has been to Athens, right? Uh, Paul entered Athens for the first time. He immediately noticed that it was totally given over to idolatry. You could walk down the marketplace and they're selling idols on the street corner. Just like now, just about anywhere where you go in the world, they're selling t-shirts and hats. Right? They were selling idols. Like, come and get your idol here. Get your idol. Ice cold idol here. 
And I mean, it's, everybody get your idols so that you can go home and worship something. And uh, when we were, this is a few years ago, when Sophie was really little, which I think she may have only been two, but we went on vacation and, and we took uh, her to an Atlanta Braves baseball game. And uh, there, before you go into the stadium, there were all these vendors who are trying to sell you stuff uh, as you go into the stadium because it's so much cheaper, right? The $6 peanuts inside the stadium are only a dollar outside the stadium. That's a great deal. And this one guy is selling water, and he's got this chant going. He's almost drumming. He's like, ice cold water, you can take it to the park. Ice cold water, you can take it to the park. He's like rapping it. I'm a good rapper, by the way, just, just let you guys know. I don't know why there's laughter at that, because it seems like that I just did pretty good, right? Did I not do good? All you millennials look at me right now. Was that not good? Should I not have done that? Was that wrong? Um, but anyway, so Sophie got this thing down, and we've got her on videotape, because she did it for like the next two or three months. Ice cold water, you could take it to the park. Ice cold water, you... And so they're selling idols in Athens, and Paul's walking through the street, and an idol here, idol there, and all this is happening. He goes to the synagogue so that he can give the gospel to the Jews in Athens, just like he did in every city. But he also went to the markets, and he mingled with people. In fact, he ended up being invited up to a place called Mars Hill, which is where the candy bar was invented. And it's where all the philosophers went to share their ideas and basically waste their ideas telling stories with each other. Uh, think of it as the, the coffee shop of the day, okay? So they all went to hear Paul's ideas. And he preached to them a sermon, one of the most famous sermons in world history. But I want you to look at the sermon because it's so different than Peter's sermon. So Acts 17, 22. Then Peter, then, sorry, then Paul, stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. And you could read this whole sermon. Uh, he gets them to a point where they began to try to process this information for the first time. Now think about this. Paul wasn't speaking to Jews. He was speaking to Gentiles. People with no scriptural background. Living in a totally pluralistic, pagan, anything-goes society. Paul couldn't begin where Peter began. The average person in Athens didn't know Abraham from an apricot. Okay? He had to begin with the very existence of God. These philosophers couldn't even agree on the name for a higher power. These people weren't at a seven or eight. They were at a one or two. They had no idea who Jesus was. 
Now notice what happened. You get down to verse number 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So some people said, get out of here, you loony guy. We don't want to hear about your resurrection theory. And some people said, you know what? I'd like to hear more about this. And right then, immediately, they didn't know it, but right then they moved from a one to a two or a two to a three because they opened their hearts just a little bit to God's truth. They got closer to being able to make a decision about Jesus. But look, there's no way to make that decision without the right information. Okay, Uh, let me give you the difference on this whole thing. Knowing there is a God is built into every single human being. It is an intuitive trait based upon his creation. You can walk out into creation and understand there had to have been a designer. Okay, Uh, It's just like when you go to your house and there's fresh chocolate chip cookies on the counter, you know that somebody baked cookies. Right? I guarantee you there's not one of you who's ever walked in your house and gone, hmm, chocolate chip cookies. There must have been an explosion in the kitchen again. Those ingredients must have mutated. Over the time while I was gone to work today, those ingredients mutated, threw themselves in the oven, and popped themselves up on the counter. Have you ever done that? Have you ever opened a book and said, wow, this is so crazy? Letters had an explosion. You've never done that. That's a simple book. And yet, your body, which has 75 trillion cells, in 13 systems, most of which you never even think about until they don't work right, works all the time. You've been designed. The creation has been clearly designed. We know this. Uh, It's not this thing that is... uh, hard for us. It's intuitive. It's on creation. That's God. But think about this. Knowing about Jesus is not intuitive. It's not innate. Romans 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Knowing about Jesus has to be learned. And people are coming to that discussion from an ever-growing array of backgrounds and hang-ups and preconceived notions. And so let's talk about the mindset of today. This is the third part of the message. And we're moving quick. Now, unfortunately, the modern age is the worst possible combination of Acts 2 and Acts 17. We live in an increasingly post-Christian culture that thinks they know about Christianity because of what a professor told them or what they read on the internet. But the actual knowledge of God's truth is shaky. I read about a church leader in South Carolina. He put this in an article. He said a couple came in with a yellow pad list of their teenage son's questions. Now this was one of the questions. What's the plus sign in the front of the building? Right, that was his legit question. Teenage son. What's the plus sign in the front of the building? You say, well, how would anybody not know that? There's a lot of people who don't know that. There's a lot. Okay? Nothing against where everybody's at on their level of knowledge. But we live increasingly in a culture 
where people are at a one or two just because of how and where they grew up. And they just don't know that stuff. I remember the first time this ever happened to me. I was on a mission trip up, up in Canada in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, I think I was a senior in high school, and, and we were talking to these kids, and there was this kid who was 15, and I said, hey, you go to church anywhere? And I'll never forget this. He said, what's church? Like, I seriously was floored. I was like, what's church? Is he, is he punning me? Is this a joke? Oh, he was serious. I said, so you don't know about Jesus? And he said, who's that? Right? That's happening more and more in our culture because people are coming at this from a totally different angle. They're Athens people, not Jerusalem people. And Acts 17 is not a call to be more hip and trendy and mirror the culture to fit in. Okay, offering lattes at church or middle-aged pastors putting on skinny jeans, uh, it might be interesting ideas, but, but they won't magically reach those far from God. Why is everybody looking, not at me, but at Pastor Cole? I don't, I wasn't, it wasn't like a, he's not even middle-aged, okay? He's talking about myself. Uh, you people, you, you have bad intentions as a crowd. Bad intentions. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he would become all things to all men to by all means save some. But listen, he wasn't talking about meeting them in behavior. He was talking about meeting them in relevancy. If we become the people we're trying to reach, there's no reason for them to make any life changes. The Acts 17 approach is not just to copy culture. It's about seeing our own communities as the mission field. In the 60s and 70s, pastors could just get up and preach, and they would say this. Billy Graham said this 10,000 times. The Bible says, right? You ever hear him say that? Have you ever heard him say that on a TV? The Bible says, and most people are like, okay. They accepted that as a fact. Now... Most of the time, we are preaching to postmodernists, many of whom have been told by somebody that the Bible is either written by man or full of contradictions or it's got all kinds of errors. And we have to lay the groundwork of truth in a spirit-filled way. We have to explain the meanings of words, not just assume that people already know what justification or atonement or repentance means. And it normally takes many interactions to build that trust. It's more of a process than it was 50 years ago. It's closer to what Paul dealt with in Acts 17 than what Peter dealt with in Acts 2. And some of them mocked Paul. But others said, hey, let's talk about this some more. And the process of moving them closer to Christ was happening. But it was happening in a much slower environment. Now, Rasmussen Report said this on Good Friday in 2013. Only 64% of Americans now believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That was down from 77% the year before. Think about this. When they were given a choice in a poll to label themselves as a follower of any certain belief system, 
one in five Americans marked none of the above. That's 20%. Now, what do these nuns believe? Now, I say nuns, N-O-N-E-S, okay? Just so you don't get confused, because that could be a really confusing thing. What do these nuns believe? Well, Mother Teresa, no, what are these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, what do they believe? And how did they get to this point? Now, let's talk a little bit, bit about it, okay? One-third of U.S. adults under 30. How many are under 30? What about me? Under 30? Okay. One-third of U.S. adults under 30 do not identify with any belief system. But, but, listen, less than a third of those claim to be atheist or agnostic. In fact, 70% of the nuns are just indifferent. Of those in that group, 88% say they aren't even looking for a specific faith or religion. They aren't even thinking enough about faith to even reject it. They're just not thinking about it at all. But sometimes we feel like if we can just make church fun enough and attractive enough, they'll come. We build it, they will come. And we think people will want what we have to offer, but they aren't even in the market. LifeWay Research in their survey found that 46% of people say they never wonder if they will go to heaven. For them, it's a non-issue. Think of it this way. In today's paper, there were dozens of ads for new cars. How many of you saw them? What person? Because she reads every word of the paper. All right? Uh, why did we not see it? Well, it's easy. You're not in the market for a new car. It's not that you're opposed to a new car. How many are opposed to a new car? Okay, you're not opposed to a new car. It's just that right now it's a non-issue. Now, folks, remember this. Whether you reject Jesus on purpose or you reject him out of ignorance or you reject him out of neglect, however you reject him, you will spend all eternity without him. Even if you say, nobody ever told me, I didn't know, I didn't want to know, it's either you believe or you don't believe. Lyons and Kinnaman did a study on how the unchurched view Christianity. This is going to blow you away. Okay, the unchurched view Christianity. 87% said that Christians are judgmental. 85% said Christians are hypocritical. 78% said they're old-fashioned. Some of you may fit the bill. 75% uh, said they're too involved in politics. 72% said they're out of touch with reality. 70% said they're insensitive to others. 68% said they're boring. Sixty-four percent said they're not accepting of other faiths. Sixty-one percent said they're confusing. Now, no matter whether those things are actually true of us or not, that's the perception out there. And our world is being secularized in real time. There is a huge push to get all God-centered beliefs taken from the public square. The false religion of humanism is just fine in the public square, but anything about God is a no-no. I like what happened at a branch of the University of Maryland recently. Uh, 92 students came into the auditorium, their caps and gowns, and the class had been told that they could not pray 
during the commencement. A court ruling had prohibited it. No one could even mention divine guidance. Uh, belief is a religious matter. It's not allowed on a public stage. Well, everything went along the prescribed routine until the final student came up to make his speech. And he stood still and silent for a moment, and then it happened. All 92 students, every single one of them, suddenly sneezed. And the student on stage looked at the audience and said, God bless you. And then he walked off the stage. And the audience exploded into a standing ovation. They found a way to invoke blessings with or without the court's approval. But, But faith is being secularized, okay? Our faith's also being privatized. It has to be bracketed off from business and politics and even from marriage and home. See, it's okay to have faith as long as you keep it to yourself. As long as you never talk about it with anyone else, right? Also, in theory, our culture is being what's called pluralized, meaning that there's a huge increase in the number of faith options available. Now, I say in theory because in reality, according to God, there's still only two classes. There's truth and there's not truth. That's it. God doesn't say there's 55 different ways. He says there's one way, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And if you don't like that one, you're going to have to take it up with God. But you know, nuns, nuns, I have to do this every time. Uh, Nuns believe that there isn't just one truth. They think that there's multiple truths about the same idea. And there's even a term for it truthiness. Here's what it means. Facts don't matter. Feelings do. By the way, truthiness was recently Oxford American Dictionary's word of the year. Maybe you've used uh, Wikipedia before on the internet. The interesting thing about Wikipedia is that any user can change facts on the article. And if enough users agree, it becomes the new truth. Now, this has led us to another term called wikiality. Uh, Reality as determined by majority vote. And all this relativism changes the foundation of society. Uh, You know, we aren't supposed to be called sinners anymore. That's taboo. We're all just mistakers now. In fact, uh, Oxford Junior Dictionary for Kids has removed the word sin from the dictionary. There are no absolutes when it comes to right and wrong. It's all just a personal, private matter. And 60% of adults from the younger generations, the emerging generations, said that morality is a personal choice. And so we've gone from an I believe society to a maybe I believe society to a who knows society. And many people wonder if truth exists at all. We are right in the middle of a needy mission field. A mission field that's getting closer to being Acts 17 than it is Acts 2. And that brings us to this final thing, considering modern missions. Our mission, if you're a Christian, given to us by Jesus Christ, is to make disciples. Okay, our mission is not just to serve the already convinced. That's not our mission. 
But unfortunately, that's what's happening way too often in modern churches. Because we don't know how to address the culture, we put our heads in the sand like an ostrich and just hope the culture will go away. And churches grow in different ways today. Churches grow by biological growth with new babies, but that only lasts so long. Uh, not many people over 50 are having babies. And, and so the churches eventually just shrivel up and die. In fact, over 4,000 churches in America close their doors every year for good because they're only growing biologically. Churches also grow by transfer growth. Instead of being disciple-making uh, assembly lines, we take disciples that are already built and move them from place to place. And look, we're, we're fine if people who are already Christians want to join in the mission of this church, but that's not our primary purpose, and that's not our primary goal for growth. We have to understand our calling. We aren't called to get someone who's already flying from Boise to Salt Lake to come and switch airlines. They're already convinced about flying. We are called to get people on a plane who have no desire or reason to fly. We are called to get people who have no motivation to ever even go in an airport. Our mission's not just to please consumer Christians and get them to switch from one airline to ours. Our job is to be contributors in life change. For those far from God, and watch the Spirit move them from one to two to eight to ten in receiving Christ. And yes, there are challenges. There have always been challenges to truth. But we all say that we want to reach the world. And so we have to ask, what's stopping us? And I try to consider, well, what in the world is stopping us from reaching out more strongly into this culture? Well, it's not our theology. Our theology is strongly biblical. It's not our strategy. That's locked in on the Great Commission. It's not our preaching. We present the gospel regularly. Uh, it's not new believers. They're out boldly sharing their faith and bringing people into the family of God. Unfortunately, the problem comes down to this. Long-term Christian insiders. Those of us who have become professional Christians, we talk a good evangelism game, but we violently resist at the point of implementation because it costs us something. We find out that we have unwittingly become consumer Christians who have made church about ourselves, not God, and certainly not about the confused nuns they were allegedly trying to reach. And so our thought process is, of course I want to reach the lost, but I'm not going to park far away. Of course I want to reach the lost, but I'm not going to attend at a different service time. I want to reach the lost, but I'm not giving up my seat. I want to reach the lost, but I only want my style of music. I want to reach the lost, but I'm not going to stand for the pastor not wearing a full suit to church. I'm going to reach the lost, but I'm not going to turn over control of ministry to a bunch of 20-somethings. They need to go back to their area. I want to reach the lost, but I'm never going to interact with people that I don't already know. How's that going to work? Just anyway, I want to reach the lost, but I'm not going to serve in any capacity except keep a seat warm 
I want to reach the lost. I have all the answers for everybody else to get better, but I'm not changing. I talk about reaching the world, but I never lift a finger toward actually doing it. Oh, it got quiet. It got really quiet. And I think I just got to get rid of that. There we go. Did that help? Did that help? Okay. It's hard for all of us to hear. We talk a good game, but in reality, many times we're doing absolutely nothing to move the gospel forward in other people's lives. And here's today's big truth. As a church, we need to move beyond evangelism theory into evangelism practice. But we need to put feet to our faith. We say we want them in heaven, but too often we act like they can go to the other place. We're called to be fishers of men. But here's what I've noticed in modern churches. So often we go on the fishing expedition and we get the boat just how we want it. And we get the engine just right. And we get the chairs just right. We get the music just right. And we get the kids area just right. And then we bait a hook and we put it in the middle of the boat and we join hands to pray for a fish to jump in and grab it. That's how we reach the world. We hang out a sign that says, hey, we've got the gospel here on Sunday mornings at 11. And if you want it, come get it. And I'm telling you, that doesn't work. We actually have to really go fishing. And if you want to go fishing, you got to go where the fish are. Where are lost people? Well, a whole lot of them are not usually at our 11 o'clock service. So let me close today with some possible responses that we can have toward those who are furthest from God, those who have no interest in God. Let's talk about us as a church. Now, one way we could do this is we could be hostile toward them. We could be openly antagonistic, and we could make it clear we don't want you around here. We don't actually have to say it. It could just be the way we look at them. We, can't, uh, we could also be indifferent to them, where it's okay if they show up, but we don't really care about them if they do. And we portray apathy toward them, maybe because of fear, because we don't know what to say, maybe because of hard-heartedness. We could be hopeful. We're nuns, where we want to see them reach Christ, but we aren't willing to change anything about the environment to do it. We could be sensitive to nuns, uh, where we want to reach them and we're willing to change the environment up, but we're still catering to the already convinced. Or, this is the best one, we can treat them like our personal God-given mission field. And we can go out of our way to connect with them and meet their needs. And we can remove barriers. I'm not talking about theology, I'm talking about attitudes and wording. And we can set the evangelism incubator to the right temperature for them to keep moving closer and closer to Christ. But to do this, we actually have to listen to them. We have to make friendships with them. We can't just treat them like outreach projects. It's not about showing how much we know. It's about them knowing how much we care. And instead of identifying them by category, 
unchurched people, pagans. We have to know them by name. Sandra or Mark or Larry. And we can't be threatened by their questions. They've had those questions for a very long time. And we have to remember that from, uh, for most of them, their hang-ups aren't really intellectual. They're emotional. They've been burned or hurt or disillusioned. And sometimes they need to feel that they belong before they'll believe. You know, when a missionary goes to a foreign field, there are always three tasks. First, they have to learn the language of the people. Then they have to become a student of the culture. And then they have to translate the gospel into that language and culture. Notice, I didn't say they have to transform the gospel. They have to translate the gospel. And in modern church, we have to understand that we are at the place in America, in our own backyard, where we have to do those same things. We have to learn the language. We have to understand the culture. And we have to put the simplicity of the gospel right at their level. And that's why today's faith challenge is this. This question. What are we really willing to do to reach people with God's truth? It is a powerful question. And we need to get very honest with ourselves about the answer. What are we really willing to do to reach people with the gospel? And my prayer is that we're willing to do whatever it takes. Anything short of sin to reach people with the gospel. Because there are people who have questions. And they're, they're starting to move toward God a little bit. They're kind of opening their hearts a little bit. But one bad attitude can knock them off course. One look can knock them off course. They're fragile. And if we're going to mature others, we have to be mature in our attitudes. And so I hope that this message helps you understand that, yeah, there's still some Acts 2 people out there who already know about God, they already know about church, they already know about some things, and we could just show them that last little bit. But there's a whole lot of people who are Acts 17. They just are confused. They don't know much about God other than what their professor told them. And he may or may not have told them the truth. And God has a special place for this church in this community at this time. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we could come to this place today. And Lord, there are people in this room from all different levels. There are some here who have been believers for decades and some who are new believers. Uh, There are some here who, who don't know yet if they're a believer. Maybe they know they're not a believer. We're all different places, and yet you are the God of creation who can meet with every person right where they are. And so I pray that you'd meet with us today. And Lord, for those of us who are seasoned believers, give us the attitudes and the action steps necessary to reach people for your kingdom and to do what you've called us to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.